It's episode 59 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Dan Mall. He's the founder of Design Collective Super Friendly and the author of the book, Pricing Design. We're going to talk about one of the hardest parts of being a designer, asking for money. Dan, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great. I really appreciate you being here. Um, man, super friendly. What a great name. <laughs> As with all good things in my life, it comes from my wife. <laughs> she named it. <laughs> uh, I just, I love the sort of uh, double entendre you have there, right? Because it is a design collective. Yeah. I went to your website, a remarkable kind of roster of people that you work with. Uh, so you got kind of like the super friends. Right? Yep, is that that's right? Yeah, right. Like uh, the old, uh, I know it from the old comics. Uh, that's uh, exactly right. You yeah. know, most people don't get that. The most people are just like, oh, I guess that means you're like really, really friendly. I'm like, sure. But yes, like I, I grew up watching uh, the Super Friends and reading comic books, and, and I'm a huge Superman fan. And so yeah. having a name that's tied to the, the superhero mythology, I, I love it. That's great. What was the name of the monkey? Do you oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, no, now we're going to have to look it up. I'll put it in show notes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're stumping me here. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's just a good brand. Like one of the, yeah. I mean, you, you are communicating right up front, this kind of relationship we're going to have if you work with us, I, ideally, exactly right. I guess, you know. Yeah. Yep. That's good. That's good. Um, hey, if uh, if we get any weird um, noises in the background, it's because uh, I am recording from home today and the bottom of my house is gone. And, uh, oh, no. Yeah, and there's like 10 dudes down. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's supposed it to be happening. Okay. Uh, there, there's like 10 guys down there with jackhammers and impact drivers and all that kind of stuff. Um, literally, uh, we're doing a remodel. We're putting a new kitchen. Um, nice. And it's kind of extensive, like digging down deeper and uh, whatever. Uh, but we are at the stage, literally, these last couple of days where they have taken everything out but not put anything in. So the house oh, is awesome. literally on these like temporary poles that they set up, and they're like, "No, no, no, it's fine. We do this all the time." So it's a little unnerving. It is a little bit. Like I, you know, <laughs> I went down there, and um, there's nothing there but a few poles that they put up. They're like, "It's fine. It's holding up the whole house. It's good." But they're going to put in some like steel girders or whatever. So these guys were like, just the other day, loading these 500 pound steel girders through the what where there used to be a window. That's <laughs> just oh like, gosh, our jobs are so different, so yeah, very that's different. Right. <laughs> um, but one of the things here, I'm uh, to the point that uh, struck me is I've been working with an architect for a while, and uh, and it's been a great experience. Ju- uh, not only because you know we're kind of making a kitchen that we want, we're really excited about that, but also the um, just to see how their process is is so much more established than our process as as <laughs> yes. digital designers. Uh, he's like, here's the contract we're going to use. It is published by the Royal Guild of Architects or whatever they have uh-huh. over here. Uh, probably going to get angry emails from architects from uh, England now. Um, but but they have this association, essentially. that and, like They have a number of contracts. Here's the one that generally represents residential projects. And, and he's like, I, you probably won't have any changes. Most people don't. I was like, all right. <laughs> I just looked through the contract. I'm like, okay, great. It's like four pages long. It's very yep. straightforward. Uh, and he's like, here's how we do pricing. Here's how much your kitchen will cost. And I'm like, how do you know? And he's like, look. And he's like going through a, ah. a spreadsheet and clicking. And he's like, this costs this much and this much. And you want that? Or here's some options and stuff like this. I cost this much. The builders cost this much. And um, and it was just so standardized. It was just incredible. Yeah, and I kind of remember getting started you know, with Adaptive Pathway in the, in the uh, way back then. You know, you sit down with a the client. They'd be like, how much is it? And I'm like, 
how much you got. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so it's really refreshing to uh, read through your book and, and see like, oh, all right. So ind- industry standardization is one of many ways of pricing. Uh, yeah. And it may not actually be beneficial for us to have that level of standardization. Um, anyway, I'll let, you, I'll let you go on up to that. But that was my experience well, as yeah. an architect. I, I think that's right. And I think that part of the difference is that architects, when you hire an architect, there's a certain level of quality that you can expect at a minimum. With web designers, it's not the case, right? It's like somebody's niece or nephew could be a web designer, as well as somebody who's practicing for 20 years, 30 years even. Yeah. You know, and and the, the general public, the people hiring us, they don't have a good way to tell. And so pricing is actually one way that people can separate themselves from, I'm not someone's niece or nephew. I'm not working in a basement, uh, you know, just figuring this out as I go along. Or maybe, maybe, I are, maybe you are. Um, but it's a but because we don't have that level of standardization, we need another way to qualify for, yeah. for our customers. Makes sense. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That does because we don't also have like levels of certification and things like that, right? right? Like there's no, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've been doing this for a very long time, but we are also very much uh, in a nascent industry, right? Like it may, yeah, it may have been right. 25 years of doing this kind of stuff, but um, but it's you know many thousands of years for the architects, isn't it? Exactly, and and ours changes so much too. Like it, it's just. It changes so frequently that by the time we establish standards, they're already destroyed. So how do we keep up with the pace of that? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, we kind of, uh, I think we cycle through and iterate this stuff super fast right now. And that's fine because uh, we're laying down tracks that are going to last for a long, long time. So Yeah, that's right. You know what? One thing that's really interesting to me about what you just said is that we are laying down tracks that will be there for a long time, but we also are creating ephemera at the same time, right? Mm. The, what we do is so easy to, it's so cheap. That's one of the things I love about working in digital as opposed to say print. It's yeah. like we make a mistake, we just change it, yeah. right? Like within a second and then we're done. And then that new version, unless we've archived it, that old version is gone forever. Yeah. You know, it's just just gone. Like It's just ephemera. And so I appreciate that because it's actually easy for us to make waste where appropriate and also easy for us to save and store what we want as appropriate. You know, digital storage is cheap relatively. So, you know, we can store as much as we want. That's true. Um, that's probably what attracted to it to me in the very first place was this idea yeah. of, of just keep trying, just keep trying, just keep trying. I had a, uh, when I was in college years ago, a professor that taught photography. Um, and this is digital, or this let's film, film cameras, right? Like this is... Well, I won't say the year, but a while ago. And we had, uh, and he taught me two incredibly valuable lessons. He said, uh, the first thing is, if you have a camera in your hands, you can do weird, crazy stuff. And people are just like, oh, he's trying to get a picture. Like, you can go to the mall and you can lay down on the floor of the mall, like right in the middle and like stare at the ceiling. But if you have a camera in your hand, people just like kind of get out of your way. He's like, use it. Interesting. And I was like, oh, that's great advice. But the other part that applies to this, he said, look, all of your film was already paid for in your tuition fee stuff. So here, and he's like got this like garbage can full of film canisters, right? Hmm. He's like, just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And you will shoot 50 photographs and you might like one. But don't try to like, ooh, I've got 24 frames on this film. Like, don't do that. Like, do not worry about it. Just here, fill your pockets and go out into the world and shoot it all and see if you get one good one. And to me, that was like, oh, there's no scarcity. I'll have to, right? Like, right. Even with print, like, oh, it's costing us, you know, $57 every time we run a new, like, just to run one test sample to see if the color is right. Like, you know, this, when I was in digital, like, there's no scarcity. Just 
try and try and try and, and delete and delete and delete and um and you know like just make another layer in photoshop and another one and like make a hundred layers make a thousand like just keep going right yeah. so anyway i really like that I wonder where our cultures change that because hey, I totally agree. That's that's exactly what we are encouraged and we should be encouraging each other to do when we're working in digital. And yet, you know, you you see a lot of companies and managers they disincentivize that churn. You know, and I think that's one of the great things about working in the way that we do it on the things that we do is that we can churn as much as we can and create that. There is no scarcity, and yet some in, in a lot of circumstances and cultures were penalized for that, right? Oh, if you don't nail it on the first shot, you know, it's a problem. You get fired or you get reprimanded or the client won't accept this. So, you know, like, I wonder where that came from. I don't know. Our education system, like you have yeah, a test maybe. and you got to get everything right on the test and you got one shot at it. You got to turn in your paper and like, there's no drafts. There's no iterations. You get a grade on the paper. You're done. Super frustrating and like not yeah. preparing us at all for how like the practices actually work. But yeah, anyway. I get that for like a surgeon. You know, like that, I don't want them to like iterate on me, you know, but, but for what we do, I think that we got to do a better job of, of encouraging a culture that lets us do that stuff and, totally. and make waste. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I guess good point. Like I don't want my architect to keep trying until the house doesn't fall down. <laughs> right. Like, uh, all right. So how, what, what should we talk about first? Do we want to talk about the different ways that pricing happens or should we yeah. just get right to the meat first and say, why is it so hard for us to put a value on our work? Let's do that part first, Ooh. and then we can talk about how we actually do it. Why is it yeah, so hard? Uh, because we don't understand it, I think. So like one of the things that I tr I'm trying to say more and more when I talk to people about pricing, whether that's students or professionals or people that have been doing this for a long time, I tend to skip this part. So I always try to say this when I talk about pricing now, which is if you understand it, that's good. And if you're making money and being profitable, that's good. So whatever the ways that you can do that, Great. And that means, you know, kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about, iterate on the way you price too. You know, it doesn't have to be yeah. one way. It doesn't have to be, well, I just do this way. Everybody does this way. And that's it. There are so many different ways to price. And the goal, I think, that gets forgotten is for you to be profitable, right? And then also, and how do you become profitable? By making your customers profitable. Because if they get value from what you're doing, you will make money from it. If they don't get value from what you're doing, you will not make money from it. You might temporarily, but that, but, that, that might be short-lived. And so that's like the, that's the underlying foundation around all of pricing is well, you've got to understand the way that you price, right? If you don't understand hourly pricing, you're not going to do a good job pricing hourly. Mm. If you don't understand value pricing, you're not going to do a good job pricing by value. Um, and, and then the other part is like, if you're making money doing hourly pricing, great. Continue to make money doing hourly pricing. That's awesome. You know, continue to be profitable. I think that gets lost in the pricing discussions because there's like there's so much religion around it. Oh, if if you do hourly pricing, it's unethical. It's certainly one school of thought, you know. But if you're making, you know, I know a lot of companies that switched from fixed pricing to hourly pricing and are are now doing great because of that. So I think that that should be said is that like make money if you're making money great keep on going if there's stuff that's broken if you don't understand it if you're not making money uh now here are some options for you here are some other ways that you can think about this generally earlier in people's careers i think they really struggle with simply asking like stating the price and saying what yeah. the thing costs where do you think that that set of emotions come from is that just uh like like there's there is like almost a, a universal human insecurity around I'm going to tell you a number that represents my work and you're going to give right. me that number in, in dollars or pounds or whatever. Like, right. I, I, what do you think? Where, where does that, is it just experience? Uh, I think so. I think part of it is confidence to just uh, like, to be bold yeah. about it. 
Um, and then the other part is that there's always a game that's played, right? Like client, when you're negotiating a price with a client, especially because we don't have like a, we don't have a, a sheet that says this is what web designers charge. So we can't base it on that. So we're sort of like, how much should I ask for? Because I don't want to ask for too low because then they're going to say yes. And if they say yes too quickly, then I'm going to wish that I had stayed at a higher price. But then the client doesn't want to tell me because they want me to come in lower um, so that they can save some. So there's this game that both uh, the service provider and the customer plays where like you both are feeling like you have to hit the sweet spot, right? It's this old school, like, you know, you write your number on a paper and I write my number on a paper <laughs> and then we slide it to each other. There's that dynamic that exists in pricing that I think we all believe that we have to play that game. And it's not until we realize I don't have to play that game. There's actually different ways that we can talk about money because money's awkward for a lot of people. You know, it's personal. It's, mm. it's, uh, and so I think that, that baggage comes with it too. Ah, that's a really good point. It's not like you like sit down at a dinner party and you turn to the person next to you and you say, how much do you make per year? <laughs> right. Like nobody does that. Like that, yep. that is a, that is almost a taboo in our, uh, in our society, in our culture. Yep. So, so I, maybe that's where it comes from, which is like, I am about to say to you what I think my salary should be. And you're going to tell me yes or no, right? So there's a judgment involved in that too. Maybe that's, that's right. And, and the no means more than just, no, I will not pay that price. Because a lot of people take it as, no, I do not believe that you are worth uh, that amount. Yeah. And that's, that's, hard. that's hard rejection to hear. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people don't want to, you know, I would identify with this. If I don't put myself out there, I won't get rejected, you know, because yeah. I don't give somebody the opportunity to say no to me. And so there's all that blahness around money and talking about money. And so part of the reason that I wrote the book is to say, like, here's, a, here's some vocabulary that you can use to talk about money in a way that maybe won't feel awkward to the person you're talking to, and maybe more importantly to you, so that you can be confident about talking about this stuff. Man, it's like asking somebody the problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it seriously and it's is. just the yeah. ultimate rejection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly how we do prices. Like, um, you know, maybe I will do this work for you, but if you want it, but if, but it, as long as you're going to say yes, because if you're going to say no, then maybe I wouldn't have offered that. And yeah. what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's what's the question again? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, I want to uh, I want to uh, ask you a bunch of questions about this, but we're going to take our a break here first. Cool. Uh, and uh, and talk about good friends of ours who are sponsoring the program, and that is Abstract. They do design workflow management for modern day teams. Um, look, it is not a surprise to anybody listening to this podcast that more and more companies are realizing that design is a competitive advantage. I would even go so far as to say it's like table stakes. Like I think all companies are really starting to to realize that like design is something that is an absolute like good design bare minimum to get their products out. Uh, but wow, have our tools not kept up with that with the the idea that the whole organization now wants to be involved in the design process at some rate. So, if you're a designer, you can probably know how frustrating it is to search and export for files from one tool to another just so that you can get feedback from all these different sources uh, and never really being totally sure what has changed and what's been approved and what's been created, and especially as your teams get bigger and bigger. Uh, that's where Abstract comes in. It was founded by Josh Brewer, uh, who is the former principal designer over at Twitter. Um, and what they've created over at Abstract is basically GitHub for designers. Abstract is like a version-controlled source of truth for all the design work with your team, with your company, for everything. It brings, it brings all the design workflow into a single unified place for designers, developers, and stakeholders so they can collaborate and you can keep the work moving forward. Uh, they've got 100,000 people using it and they've only been going a couple of years now. So uh, this thing has really taken off. 
Uh, and that's a bunch of people now who are spending less time searching for their files and tracking down the feedback and more time focused on making great stuff for their customers. Uh, uh, that includes companies like Intuit, Zappos, and MailChimp. They're all using Abstract now. Uh, and here's some of the things you can do. You can version your design files. You can present the work right in the tool. You can request reviews of the work, collect feedback from people, and uh, and this is really great, give des- developers direct access to all the specs for all the design work. Do that all in one place. All right, you sign up now, try it for 30 days, totally free, no risk. Go see if your team likes it. I'm sure they will. Go to goabstract.com. Uh, they're doing a little contest. I'll give you $500 of credit uh, if you win. The way to enter is to tweet at GoAbstract and include at PresentableFM. We'd appreciate that. And just use the phrase, improve my design workflow. They'll keep an eye on all of those and uh, and pick one to win $500 credit so you can really get going. That URL, one more time, GoAbstract.com, 30-day free trial for your team. Thanks to our friends at Abstract for supporting Presentable and all of Relay FM. Dan, you ever used Abstract? You tried out yet? I have. It's great. Uh, I love Josh and Tim and Heather and all the folks over there. They're wonderful. Good. Hey, look at that. Good. Um, excellent. Well, uh, maybe we get a few more people using it as well, because uh, <laughs> yeah. I have heard only great stuff and, uh, and my limited experience with it. I have really enjoyed it as well. All right. Let's see. Where were we? Oh, yeah. How do we ask for money? Um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the different ways we do ask for money, different styles of pricing. I mentioned earlier in the beginning here uh, the kind of industry standard, uh, which still is not – I'm not sure how that resonates with the digital design we do. It's not like you go like websites are $10,000. Like I I don't feel like we have – a standard, I guess, you know, like I could go to all the guests that I've had on Presentable and ask them what their hourly rate is and find the number in the middle. But like, Mm -hmm. do we really, is there an industry standard at all for pricing design in uh, on the web? Uh, Not that I found because the industry is large and very varied, right? So there, again, there's like, there's the student that's working on stuff and then there's the professional company that's working on stuff. So it's kind of like, what's the price of a website? Well, I've charged $500 for a website once. I've done a website for a steak dinner once. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've also done websites for $2 million. You know, so like, is that the range? It's kind of like, how much is a car? Well, a car is $800 to $3 million, right? That's the price of a car. You can only determine the price of a specific car as you get more specific. Well, I want a Lamborghini. Oh, cool. Well, it's not going to be $800. It's going to be closer to this range now. So I think that that's one of the ways that we talk about websites is it's too ge- it's too general yeah. a question. Yeah. I think the more specific we can get about it, the easier it gets. Now agencies, you know, if you talk about advertising agencies or digital agencies, they generally tend to exist in a range. You know, so I've seen as low as for small shops fifty or seventy five dollars an hour, all the way to some of the bigger advertising agencies charging six hundred or nine hundred dollars an hour. Um, a lot of them have rate cards, right? Which is to yeah. say, this is how much we charge for our creative director. This is how much we charge for a senior designer. This is how much we charge for an intern developer, right? And that's the thing that they can give to their clients. So it really is all over the map. That is also the, <clears throat> that hourly rate stuff that you were talking about earlier, which, uh, you know, if you're going to, uh, as a client, I want a website and I go to five agencies and get bids, I'm going to be able to compare all their hourly rates, right? So, right. Uh, so there's at least some market dynamic there. Yeah. And the problem is it's people, you know, customers generally want to shop apples to apples, right? They want to say, I'm going to talk to five different companies about the same website and I'll get five different quotes. And then if I'm price shopping, I'll just pick the lowest. Yeah. The problem is each of those companies aren't going to quote you the same website. They might, even if they think that they are, what everybody thinks of as website is different and whatever they, they charge is different. And so when customers try to shop apples to apples, 
it's hard because the, the service provider actually aren't, aren't providing them apples. And I think one of the things that's really difficult about that, and or one of the things that we can also take advantage of too, is the fact that when people buy things in general, not just shopping for websites or digital apps or anything like that, but just when you're shopping for, I don't know, apples at the supermarket, yeah. what we do is we we relate prices to things that we can compare, right? We, we think of price relatively. A, a piece of paper, you know, a, a dollar has no actual value to us. We only think about what we could get with that dollar. So if we understand that part, that starts to unlock the door to pricing is when I say $100 an hour, what does my customer think about? Well, they think about the plumber that they just hired. You know, they think about mm. it's cheaper than I pay my lawyer, you know, to get me out of that one jam. Yeah. They think about, oh, that's not what I pay my chiropractor, you know, or maybe it is what I pay my chiropractor, but it's not what I paid my surgeon. Yeah. You know, so if you, if you think about, well, what, what are they comparing it to in their mind? What's the relative value of what I'm talking about? I think that's the gateway to thinking about, well, what, what could I actually make them think about now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a little earlier, you mentioned that some in the industry, there's some, kind of a sense of uh, hourly billing being unethical. I was going to ask you about that. What do you? Where, where would that come from? Yeah, so you hear that a lot when you when you talk to people who are proponents of value pricing, um, and uh, the idea there is when you price by, by value. And so let me break that down for a minute. When you price by value, it's basically saying you are mostly concerned or primarily concerned with how much value you can deliver to your customer. Yeah, and that's the price that you're that that you're charging them. So if they're for a, a simple example is if you're going to build an e-commerce site for someone and they're going to make an extra million dollars off of it, that's the value. And so how much of that are they willing to, to give back mm-hmm. to you for that opportunity? Is it $100,000, you know, a percentage of right. that $1 million that they would make? And so proponents of value pricing basically say, if you charge hourly, you're basically not caring about the customer. That's the unethical part. You're saying, I charge $100 an hour, or I charge $10,000 for this website, or I charge $1 million for this website, regardless of you and regardless of what you get. And that is the part that's unethical, is actually not thinking about what they get. If, if, your work would actually do them harm. You're being unethical by charging them any price for it. Any, mm. you know, any price is, is you're being unethical by doing that. If, and, and it's also uh, maybe less of an ethical issue, but it actually doesn't allow you to tailor to, say, a nonprofit that may not have as much money. Right? When you value price, basically you think about the value that you're delivering and it allows you to ethically say, this is why I charged a different price to this customer and to that customer. Even though what I made for them is the same thing, the output is the same, the outcome is not the same. So it actually is more ethical to do that for all your customers to say, I'm going to charge you a price that is profitable for you and you and you. And those are going to be different prices because I'm delivering different outcomes to all of you. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, you know, unethical is a pretty heavy word. Not it sh- is. It's true. Not it's, sure. It's a, but it's a, yeah. I can see you've painted a clear picture of the debate. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, cool. and I don't necessarily say that I agree with the with that. But ethics and pricing is something that comes up a lot, especially with people who've written about value pricing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, all right. Yeah. So value pricing. Let's get into it because it feels like that's where the book kind of heads. You know, your 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 point of view. It's like this is where we should be going, and um, and so let me. As I see it, right, I imagine like I'm being hired to design a homepage for an e-commerce website. And, mm-hmm. um, and what I want to do is sit with my client and understand as deeply as I can what their goals are for this, not just this project, but for that, that experience that people are going to have on that homepage. And it is likely to be characterized something as higher conversion, they want more people who land on that page to go through and become customers uh, than they currently have. 
right? Uh, so they are very likely spending money to get people to come to that website. In our like startup land, where where I spend most of my time, we call that the CAC, which is an awful <laughs> acronym for Customer right. Acquisition Acquisition Cost CAC. Yep. Uh, that means this is literally the number of dollars that I spend to get somebody to land on that page. And uh, I want that number to go down, right? So that the amount of money that I spend in proportion, right, it, uh, leads to more and more customers. And I, I make the most of my customer acquisition costs. Uh, so if you say like, all right, well, I'll design your webpage. And let's say we get that improvement to be 20% higher. Uh, and that saves you $100,000 in your first year. Give me some of that. Yep. Good. Yeah, all right. We right. got to figure so, it out. All right. Good. Let's all go do that. <laughs> so, okay. So, so let's talk about the, the components of that. Yeah. Um, one is that you could do it exactly like you just said, which is to say, I'm going to do it for free right now. And once that result happens, oh, yeah. I get a kickback from it. Right? <laughs> so that's one version of pricing is to say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it right now. I know for sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help mark that improvement for you. What I do is going to help you get to that point. So for every new customer you get, I get X percent of that, right? Yeah. So it's essentially an equity deal. You yeah. Know, after. yeah, yeah, yeah. Share the you risk. Could, exactly, right? Share the risk. You could do that in advance, right? So you could say, I'm pretty sure that you're going to get an extra million dollars from this. And so because I'm sure about that or pretty sure about that, I'm going to charge you $100,000 right now. Yeah. And it's possible that you might make 500000 instead of a million, but even there it was profitable for you. So I'm going to ask for some of that in advance. All right. Another way you can do it is you could, uh, so, so let me kind of stop there and say, uh-huh. for both of those two, um, those two types of pricing, you're, you're talking to the customer about what you can deliver. You're saying, this, if this is what you want, this is what I, this is what I would do it for. If yeah. you went the other way, if you went with an hourly price or a fixed price, right? if you say, well, you know, I normally do homepages for $10,000 then the conversation changes. The conversation is totally different because you don't even have to care about the goal. The client could say, I'd like a homepage. And you say, cool, that'd be $10,000. Right. right? You don't have to talk about what they want. You don't have to talk about what they would get. You don't have to talk about what you would deliver, what process you would take, how long it would be. You could just say it's $10,000. And then your customer says, cool, I'm willing to pay that or I'm not willing to pay that. Now, I've never been part of a transaction that simple. Yeah. We want a homepage, $10,000. Cool, where do, we, you know, where do we write the check? Right. You know? right. Usually there's questions that come with that. Or, well, yeah, but what do I get? And how do I know that I'm going to do this? And value pricing caters to that nicely, right? Value pricing, because you are talking to customer about goals. Um, very rarely uh, in an hourly pricing model, do you have to talk about those things, even though we do generally. But you could even do it as you know, a client would say, I, know, I want a homepage, or potential customers say, I want a, a home, new homepage. Yeah. And you could say, cool, that'll be $100 an hour. And, th- and their next natural question would be, okay, how about how many hours do you think it would take? <laughs> oh, I think it would be you know, X amount of hours. And then you, they do the math, and then, uh, and then you come up with a price. So let, let me stop there just to say, those are different types of ways of pricing that same exact project. Yep. But each of those ways of, of pricing leads to different conversations. Mm. That's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which conversation is actually more valuable to the outcome? Yes, exactly. And that's why, that's why I prefer value pricing is because it keeps me and my customer always focused on the outcome, right? If I'm asking about goals, so one of the things that comes with value pricing, there's a guy named Blair Enns who wrote a, a lot about this. Um, he has this concept that there are four conversations that happen in sales. And one of those conversations is a value conversation where what you're trying to, to ascertain is, what is the value to them? And so you're asking them questions like, uh, there's a thing called the, uh, the three-year question, which is, you know, in three years, you and I are going to sit down, we're going to have coffee. 
this project will have done really well, right? So three years from now, what does that look like? You know, what does the end state look like for you? Mm. And getting your customer to envision and communicate that end state helps you to help them figure out what the value of that is to them. You know, oh, in three years, because we had this new website, we have, you know, X amount of customers more per month. That led to us actually being able to IPO in the next two years because there's, it's, it set off this chain of events that, what you know, so now you're having a very different conversation than, well, how much time is that going to take? What are the deadlines? What are the deliverables, right? Those are two very different conversations with different focal points. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a valuable conversation to have, even if you're in-house and not charging for design with like your manager, your manager's manager. Like, let's talk about three years from now and the project that I'm working on and how important that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And and I think, you know, so this is the part where I say, you know, again, if you're making money, great, whatever pricing methodology works for you. This is the part where I say, consider value pricing because it keeps you focused on asking those questions. If you're trained to do hourly pricing, you're trained to not actually focus on those conversations. You sort of have to go out of your way of the pricing methodology to do that because it's less relevant at that point. And so, so if you're trained to do hourly hourly billing or, or um, time-based billing or something like that, you don't have to be focused on those questions. And so for me, it's a little bit like a, um, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse to keep me always focused on the goal and the outcome for the, for the customer. This is very reminiscent of a conversation just a month or two ago I had on this podcast with Mike Montero talking about presenting design, which is <laughs> yeah. how to get the design accepted and uh, and his almost exactly the same as you're saying now is like if you have deep conversations about the goals of the project, then you can present the work as satisfying the goals rather than just, you know, walking people through what they see on the screen. Absolutely. Um, same. Yeah. So there you go. The more time you spend understanding the goals of a project, uh, the more it will literally, in our case, pay off. Yes, that's right. Literally. Yes, your bank account will thank you. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing that, you know, I, definitely along the same lines of Mike, I agree with him on a lot of these points in that, that this is the job of designers. And I think this is why I like value pricing for designers specifically, is that this is what we know how to do. This is what we're good at. We're good at looking down the road and saying, that's where we want to get to. How do we pave paths to get there? You know, how do we, how do we think about, how are we intentional about what we render, you know, what we put in place conversationally, in pixels, in, you know, in graphic design and in interface design, how do we get there? And I think that the, the value pricing methodology fits right in line with design, research, ethnography, anthropology, all the skills that designers, you know, the, the more they have, the better they are at their job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, the beginning of your career, I don't care if you're 20 or if you're 60, but your first year of uh, doing design um, wow, like, where do you even start? You know, <laughs> like, like, how much am I supposed to make? How, how do I charge for it? Where's, you know, we'll set aside where's the work going to come from. Like, that's a whole other, I think. Sure. Yeah. But, um, but oh, okay. Somebody's like, all right, kid, uh, you know, or, uh, let's, let's see what you got. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I love this question. I, I wrote an article for actually for Mike's publication, Dear Design Student on Medium, um, called pricing, right? How do you start? So especially for students. It's, let's say it's your first gig, you're out of school, or you're in design school, or whatever, you're in high school, and somebody's like, hey, can you make a website? You're like, yes. And they're like, cool, we, we, you know, how much is it? And you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> right? Because you've never done this before. All right, That's so right. take money out of the equation, because money complicates things. It's such an abstraction that we don't know how to deal with it, especially when you're 16. You know, like, what do you, what do, you do? So instead, I think about it from an object standpoint. So I call it object value pricing. So if the client says, hey, we want a new website, and we're going to give you a PlayStation. Would you do it? Right? And if the answer is yes, 
then that means that job is probably worth, you know, what's a PlayStation? 600 bucks, 500 bucks. Uh-huh. All right. So that, that job, that web page to you is worth 500 bucks. Cool. So accept that. You know, if, the, uh, if, if you would accept a PlayStation for it, then charge the client 500 bucks. Um, if you would, if you were like, no, no, 500 bucks is way too low. You know, if they were like, we'll give you like a used Corolla, you know? Okay. <laughs> so what's a used Corolla? Let's say like 1200 bucks. Okay. So then 1200 bucks is the thing that you charge. So think about the object that you would take in trade for that thing. Is it a vacation? Is it a cruise? Is it, you know, a Corolla? Is it a new set of books? Is it a new camera? Like, what is it? And that'll help you translate that abstraction to something literal that you value, right? And then do the project. You might be totally off but do the project. This is where the iteration comes in. All right, so I do it for 500 bucks and uh, it, I, I think, yeah, I could do this this weekend and it actually takes me four months. <laughs> All right, so now in four months, what, if I knew in advance that it was going to take me four months, would I still take a PlayStation for it? Well, no, I wouldn't take a PlayStation for it. I'd actually take you know, a, a higher level used car. You know, I want, a, I want an Altima for it instead. <laughs> you know? And so that helps you shape. This is, the, this is where the iteration comes in is it's okay to be wrong the first time. It's your learning experience, mm. right? So if you're like, yeah, that took me a weekend. I'm happy with the 500 bucks. Well, then the next project you do, great, do it again, you know, if you want to. Uh, if it doesn't feel right to you, then that means you should, that you came in too low. So now increase your price. It's okay to be too low on pricing because this is a, this is a trial and error thing. So the next project, if you don't think it was worth the PlayStation, make it worth two PlayStations or make it worth three PlayStations. You know, think about whatever that thing is that you would go, oh, it's not worth that trade for me anymore. And that's a way that you can actually understand what your value looks like. It's like, how valuable is it to me? Is it worth giving up a weekend? Is it worth giving up a month? Is it worth giving up? You know, what is it worth giving up to you? And, and then, so that's the yeah. that's generally the first thing that I recommend. That is great. And then kind of iterate your way into like, oh, I get with these kind of projects, they're gonna take yep. this long for me. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, so uh the other question I have around that is is I guess the profit margin, right? Which is uh we have agreed to a price, uh, and uh, now yeah. we need to connect that to project management because like this every time I show, I bring them something, they're like, "Nah, it's not quite right. Uh, can we change this?" <laughs> oh, hey, what about if we? And all of a sudden, like all, all of like it's not worth it for me anymore. It's gone so long. Yep. Uh, okay, so let's talk about a couple of different ways to get to a healthy profit margin. The most common way is a is a, a methodology called cost plus accounting. And cost plus accounting basically says, and let's let's take it in terms of an agency or or some team that you know how much your team costs, right? If you don't know what that is, that's the first step is like, understand what your team costs. So if I have there's two designers and two developers on this project, we know what they're paying them, we know what they cost in whatever unit of times so that could be we know what they cost per month or per week or per hour, you know, it's whatever your comfort level is. And so you have some unit of time that says if we go below this amount, we will not be profitable. So if if our team of four costs $10,000 a week, and we do the project for $5,000 and it takes one week, we have lost money, right? We should not take that project. And so what you want to do is you want to make sure it costs at least $10,000, right? And this is like, this is simple math. This is, you know, kids who are, I I wrote this in the book, kids who are selling lemonade at their lemonade stand know (laughs) that if it costs me a dollar to buy the lemonade and the mix and the sugar and all that stuff, I should charge, I should at least make up a dollar, you know, when I sell the lemonade. Right. And so they, so that's why a cup of lemonade is a dollar is because the materials cost way less than you're actually selling it for. 
So the same principle applies. So what, what agencies generally do is they do cost plus and they say, all right, we, it costs us $10,000 to do this project. Obviously, we don't want to break even. We want to make some profit. So let's add some fluff to that, right? That could be an extra 50%, right? So instead of charging uh, $10,000, we're charging $15,000. We make a $5,000 profit. Uh-huh. So that's generally the, the, the most common way to do it is let's figure out what we cost, add a little bit on top of that, and that's what we charge the client. Now, this is the, so the, the formula for this is cost plus margin equals the price. Now, in value pricing, it goes the other way around because you're not worried about what you cost yet. You're instead worried about, like, again, your, your conversation with your client is all about outcomes. What do they get? Okay, well, they get an extra $100,000 in sales if we tweak their homepage, potentially. And so that extra $100,000, if that's the value of this gig, now how can you use value to drive costs down, right? And that's where you make more profit. Rather than just continuing to tack margin onto it, Hmm. how can you actually drive the cost down? So value drives cost. It's not that cost drives price. So if we ascertain the value, and then you go, okay, we have $100,000. What's the cheapest we could do this project for? Could we do it for $10,000? Uh, could, you know, could we right. do it? So, okay, so first of all, could we do it for $100,000? That's probably the first question. Could, yes. we, could we at least break even on this project? Hopefully the answer is yes. Right. So then you ask yourself, well, could we do it for 80? Uh, probably. Okay, could we do it for 50? Well, 50, we'd have to do it with one less designer on board. All right, well, could we do it with one less designer on board? Well, we could, but we'd have to reduce the number of templates that we deliver. Okay, cool. Is the client all right with that? Like, can you still get to that outcome? So that's, again, what I love about value pricing is if you're thinking about it in that way where value drives cost, it makes you more creative about how you can achieve a certain outcome. Well, if we actually did it on Squarespace instead of building a custom build, right, that saves us some time over here, but it means the client would have to be okay with this set of templates with a couple of customizations, right? right? And then you might ask your client, they're like, yeah, sure, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then, all right, great. Well, all the work that we assumed that we would have to do a custom build for, we just cut that by weeks, you know, or we cut that by, by people, you know, we don't need as many people on the project. And so it helps you be more creative about how you can actually do the project. And that's where that high margin comes from is like, I've been, I've done projects for half a million dollars that cost half a million dollars, right? Very little margin. Yeah. I've also done projects, you know, for a million dollars that cost, uh, you know, $100,000, right. right? So like ride margin, because we, just, we could think of creative ways to actually solve that problem with different tools, different staffing, different process, right? Again, things that designers are really good at. This is why I like this pricing methodology is it hmm. lets us exercise the things that we're good at already, creative problem solving, you know, in how we determine price for our clients. Mm, optimizing and, and automating where yeah. we can. And yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not, not dissimilar again from the startup world, you know, yep. uh, to be, to be honest, uh, f- finding ways uh, at both end, like how, how do we increase the price, the value that people are willing to part with for the thing we're making at the same yep, time? That's right. How can we do it more efficiently? Yeah. 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 That's good. Um, do you have any, uh, any, uh, horror stories around this? Oh boy, horror stories and value pricing. <laughs> just wondering. Uh, don't, uh, I'm don't. sure I do. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of it now. Well, okay, so uh, n- maybe not as juicy as as uh, as I would have liked to tell, but I think one of the risks of value pricing that I've certainly fall victim to is if you are focused on outcomes, your client is going to be focused on outcomes, mm. and if you do not deliver the outcome that they that they expect, right now now it's about expectation management. That's expect that to be a, a, a point of conversation, right? So you get to the end of the project and the client goes. This is not what I expected you to deliver. Mm-hmm. This is not the outcome that, that we were supposed to have. And that has bit me in the butt a couple of times. Like a couple of times, I just had to eat my words and go, you know what? You're totally right. Like 
we didn't deliver that. And now I should shell out out of my own pocket to make good on the promise because yeah. we talked about that. Uh, and then other times I've gotten to the end and said, you know, we delivered what we said we would deliver. And the client goes, no, you don't. No, you didn't. I'm like, oh, yes, we did. Right. And that's the point where you're breaking out contracts again. And <sighs> at that point, you sort of lost the battle. Right. So I've, I've certainly had my fair share of that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Um, all right. Let me, uh, one last bit here, which is um, working, doing design and, and, and sort of scoping out projects and stuff when you're working with somebody else who's responsible for the sales. Have you had that experience? I've, I, I did in the past, but, uh, but not so much. I'm just curious around that like dynamic. Yeah. Do you, do you mean like a, sales, a, a, sales an person. account manager or a salesperson, yeah. right? Okay. Sure, sure. So Either way. That's, that's tricky. Um, because sometimes the sale, well, let me go for a different angle. The best salespeople are intimately familiar with what you do and how you do it. And they can represent you. The worst salespeople are not, right? The worst <laughs> salespeople are like, well, I've got my sheet. I'm following my sheet, you know, I, and, and they don't have the ability to think outside the box. They don't have the ability to say, ah, if we did it differently, right? And they don't have a, and even if they do have that ability, they don't have the ability to do it in a way that the team appreciates, right? So I've been, yeah. in, I've been in situations where the salesperson has sold the project and said, cool, you've got two weeks and we got to build a full website and we got to build it on, uh, you know, Joomla. I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, the constraints are too tight there. Well, I'm sorry, I sold it that way. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't have sold it that way, you know? And so now the team is hamstrung because we go, well, something has been promised to the client and now we are responsible for delivering it. So the best sales teams that I've worked with are ones that are, are really tied into the team because I think the team should be making the decision about how are we going to do this? And then the salesperson's job is to quantify the value or, or quantify whether or not we have the appropriate margins to have the space to do that work. Um, so I think that that somebody who is not part of the team but responsible for speaking for the team, I think they have to be tied into the team. Otherwise, it's a, it becomes a disaster. That's really an inflection point for the agencies, right? When oh, yeah. when the principals in the agency stop doing the selling, or right, um, or the pre or at least aren't as day to day involved in it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen with a lot of agencies that I, I appreciate is that they are no longer having account managers. Um, they instead are are in title, calling their account manager strategist. And I think the worst part of that hmm. is if it's just a, it's just a title change, well, then it doesn't matter. But actually telling your account managers, you have to be strategizing about this project. You're no longer just the person who's in charge of whether our burn rate is, is good and whether the client is happy. You actually have to be strategizing about outcomes for this client. It's actually shifted their mindset to go, how can we create more value from them? And what I found in that, you know, when talking to agency owners that have made that shift, is they find their former account managers, now strategists, actually going back to the team and going, hey, I just found this new tool. Do you think this is something that actually we could do for this client? And the team goes, yeah, well, this is cool. We could maybe try that thing. So they become part of the team because their mindset has changed in how they deliver value as a strategist, as opposed to, you know, how can I just make sure that the client is, you know, I'm taking the client out to fancy dinners as an account manager. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and incentives as well, you know, all of that. Yeah, for sure. That really ties in. Yeah, that's good. Uh, look, I'm going to just recommend to everybody just get the book and read it. It's um, <laughs> it is one of these uh, now book apart does, does it, what do they call briefs? Yeah, briefs. Yep. It's uh, a couple hours. You get right through it, and it's it's concise uh, and and straightforward. If I wanted to go deeper, if anybody wanted to go deeper, what do you recommend? Yeah. There's a ton of resources, which I'm happy about. There are more and more coming out. So my book is through a book apart. It's 50 pages, which is like, you know, a flight or like a long bathroom break or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it was ebook only. Um, now, a book apart actually just started doing print books. So you can get it in print now, too. Oh, nice. um, 
I have a bunch of resources in the book, but I'll mention a couple here that were really influential for me. So the first one is uh, a book called Implementing Value Pricing. It's by a guy named Ron Baker. And to me, it's the Bible of value pricing. And, and that's where he goes through uh, the economics of pricing. He goes through the ethics of pricing. I don't cover a lot, a lot of that stuff in my book. My book mm. is a, very much a, a tactical kind of how-to with examples. Ron's book really gets into the theory of that stuff. So his book is fantastic. Um, Blair Enns wrote a great book called Pricing Creativity. Um, that's a wonderful book. Um, there's another book by Alan Weiss called Value-Based Fees. Um, and I'll, I'll mention one more, which is that Jonathan Stark, who's a developer turned consultant, um, has a great newsletter and a podcast. Um, and uh, his site, I think, is called hourlybillingisnuts.com, something like that. <laughs> uh, so check that out. But his newsletter is invaluable. I get it every day. It's one of the ones that I, I, I read every day because it's just so good. And he just shares like little anecdotes and nuggets and pricing discussions. And he's got a whole Slack channel. Um, so those are all great resources. There's a ton more, but those are, those are some good ones to start with. Fantastic. I uh, will put links up to all of that in the show notes that we have here. Cool. Uh, any, any, anything on the way out? Any final thoughts? No, thanks for talking to me about this stuff. I always love talking about it. Well, you're very good at it. This was a great <laughs> conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, let's see if we can get you at uh, Dan Mall on Twitter. Is that right? That's right. Dan Mall on Twitter. DanMall.me is my website where I've, uh, I've committed to blogging regularly again. So uh, I'm doing a good job so far this year. Great. All right. More to read uh, over there. Dan, ah, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.